All right, I want to encourage all of you guys to open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Or your phone or your iPad, whatever you've got. Let's, let's get the Word of God in front of our eyes today. So we're going to go ahead and read verses... 1 through 7, but we are not going to cover all of those verses. This is just to give us the context of the first paragraph of the chapter. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, call the saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would you shed light on this text? We are a people that are desirous of being under the word. We pray, Lord, that we would just put ourselves under the word today and you would speak to our hearts, that we might obey you and walk with you and love you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last Sunday morning, we strapped our wings on and we flew over the book of Revelation. I mean, book of Romans, not the book of Revelation. <laughs> I've never taught the book of Revelation, so it couldn't have been that one. <laughs> we, we got a bird's eye view of the book of Romans. Remember we talked about how the Tahoe Rim Trail would take two weeks if you were to hike it but a bird could fly it in six hours. Well, that's what we did with the book of Romans. We just flew over it. We got the big picture. We saw Paul's flow of thought from beginning to end. But today I want you to put on your hiking boots because we're going to start hiking through this terrain. Slowly, methodically, and I hope a fascinating hike and study and travel through this book. What I find so intriguing about the book of Romans is that God has used this book Whenever he was about to do a work of revival in the church, he used the truths of the book of Romans to do it. And he used the book of Romans to convert some of the giants of church history. It was the year 386 AD. A man that we know as St. Augustine was in deep distress of soul because he felt like he was enslaved to his lusts. He was a man who lived in sexual immorality, debauchery, and he was sitting there in this depressed state of mind, and he heard this child off in the distance yell, Take up and read! Take up and read! They were just kind of crying out, as kids do as they play. And so he looked around, and right next to him on his bench there was a copy of the New Testament. And he just opened it at random, and it opened to Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, which was exactly what he needed to hear at that moment in his life. This is what it says. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And that struck him like a bolt of lightning in his soul that day. And it was very soon after where he was thoroughly converted to the Christian faith and became one of the giants, the intellectual giants, of theology within the Christian faith down to this day. Later in the year 1515, a Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther was studying the book of Romans. And he said he kept beating his head against Romans 117. Because in Romans 117 it says, In the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And he didn't know what that meant. Because he thought the righteousness of God meant 
God's righteousness by which he punishes the unrighteous. And Luther knew that he was unrighteous. He had been involved in fastings and um, all kinds of confessions and ill treatment of the body, doing everything he could think of to try to make himself right with God. And he still was distressed in mind. He still had a guilty conscience. He still didn't understand the gospel. And he said, one day it broke forth in upon my heart what that phrase meant, the righteousness of God. I'll let him tell it in his words. He said, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat urgently and persistently upon Paul at Romans 1.17, most ardently desiring to know what he wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is the righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Meditating on Romans 1.17, Martin Luther was converted to Christ and we all know the movement that was generated through this man of God, the Protestant Reformation, we are products of that today because we are Protestants ourselves. And then later, May 24th, 1738, John Wesley was in England. He had just come from America. He was trying to be a missionary to the Indians. He failed miserably, and on his way back, he wrote in his journal, Oh, I went to convert the Indians, but who will convert me? He ends up back in England. He goes to this group of Christians who are meeting on Aldersgate Street in England. And he writes in his journal about what happened on that night. And he, he tells us what time it was. <laughs> about a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And John Wesley went on to found the Methodist movement, the revival of the 1700s. He was involved in the first great awakening in which thousands upon thousands of people came to know Christ and experienced the new birth. Frederick Godet, a Swiss commentator, has said this about the Book of Romans. Every movement of revival in the history of the Christian church has been connected with the teachings set forth in Romans. Martin Luther said, The epistle to the Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, which is well worth and deserving that a Christian man should not only learn it by heart, word for word, but also daily deal with it as the daily bread of men's souls. It can never be too much or too well studied. And the more it is handled, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. So Martin Luther said, this would be good for every Christian to learn the book by heart, to memorize the book of Romans. I'm just going to throw out a challenge. Maybe some of you will take me up on it to try to memorize this book. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> this is a serious challenge. John Calvin had this to say. When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle... He has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. Samuel Coleridge said, I think that the epistle to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. John Knox, not the Scottish reformer, this is another John Knox, made this statement. It is unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. High praise on this book. And one of my favorite Modern commentators and pastors, John Piper, finished an exposition of the book of Romans. Uh, he, he preached from 1998 to like 2006, with a few breaks in between, 225 total sermons, and he called this series the greatest letter ever written. So folks, when we come to this book, we're not coming to just any ordinary book. We're coming to a book that has changed lives multitudes of lives down through the centuries. And I'm excited to see what the Lord might do in our lives.
as we take in the truths of this book. It's the longest, most systematic, most profound of all the New Testament epistles. Probably it is the most powerful document ever written. Paul is writing to a church he had never visited. And he's writing to them to lay a doctrinal foundation, not to correct problems. Most of Paul's letters were written to correct problems that were going on in churches, like 1 Corinthians or Galatians. This isn't like that. He's not correcting problems. He's giving them the content that he would give to a new church that he planted. He's letting them know what the gospel is and how it impacts all of life. He's writing from Corinth in the winter of 57 to 58 AD, a three-month period of time. His plan is to go to Jerusalem because he's carrying a, an offering that the Gentile churches have collected, and they've entrusted that to Paul with several others. They're traveling to Jerusalem to give that money to the poor brethren there in Jerusalem. And then Paul's plan is to go to Rome and to be helped on his way from Rome to Spain because Paul wants to preach where there has been no witness for Christ at all. So I hope you appreciate the greatness of this book. It's well worth any time that we spend. And originally I thought, you know, maybe we can just kind of take big thought blocks and we'll get through this book quickly. But I, I'm no longer of that opinion. If there are nuggets here, I don't want to pass them over. So we'll take whatever time we need to really get the nuggets of gold that God has given to us in this book. We're going to focus this morning on Romans 1, verses 1 to 5. Just the introduction. And there's two themes we're going to look at. First, Paul. Second, Paul's gospel. Paul and his gospel. First of all, let's look at this first word, Paul. There's three things that he tells us about himself in this letter. And notice the style of letter writing. When we write a letter today... We write, dear so-and-so, we write the whole letter, and at the very bottom we say, love, or sincerely, or warm regards, Brian. But in the first century, the way they wrote letters is they would start off by giving their name, Paul. And then they would write their letter. And you know, it makes a lot more sense, because when I get a letter in the mail, the first thing I want to know is, who's writing to me, right? <laughs> so it makes sense, and that's how they start here. Paul, he is, number one, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, Number two, he's called as an apostle. Number three, he is set apart for the gospel of God. Now let's just meditate on that first phrase. He's a bondservant of Christ Jesus. The Greek word is doulos. It means he's a slave. Paul said, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, because he identified himself as a slave, there's two things that were true about him. First one is that he was bought by Christ. Paul saw himself as being purchased. The purchased property of Jesus Christ. When he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7.23, this is what he tells them. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Or in 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. So Paul was not the only one who was a slave of Jesus Christ. When he writes to the whole church, he says that all of them are also slaves of Jesus Christ. And folks, that means that you and I are slaves of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian. You and I, as well as the Apostle Paul, have been bought. We are his property. He has purchased us with his own blood. When he went to that cross... He laid down the price of his blood to redeem us out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So Paul knew that his life didn't belong to himself. He knew that his body, soul, and spirit belonged to Jesus. And the second implication of him being a slave of Christ was that he knew he was ruled by Christ. Not only was he bought, but he was ruled. And that's true of any slave, right? He is ruled by his master. He's not free to do whatever he wants to do. His time's not his own, right? He can't sit around playing checkers when work is to be done. The master's cracking the whip. He's saying, no, it's time to work. He's there to do the master's will. And Paul understood that because he was a bondservant of Christ Jesus, his purpose on earth was to do the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Look at how he puts this in Galatians 1, verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You see, if Paul did not see himself as a bondservant of Christ, he could please men. But he says, because I do see myself as Christ's bondservant, I can't just please men. I've got to please Christ. He's my master, not these men, not these people. Their opinions of me, maybe they're more important than they ought to be, but really the opinion that's really important is Christ's. And so my life on earth is to seek to please him because he is my master. I am a slave. So he knew that he was not free to do whatever he wanted with his life, his body, his time, his energy, his talents, his gifts, because Jesus was his boss. Jesus was his Lord. Jesus was in charge of all of his life. And if you are a Christian, that is absolutely true about you. We are either good servants or bad servants, but we are servants of Christ. If we regulate our time according to the way that would please Christ, we are good servants. Oftentimes we waste our time and fritter our time away on things that would not please Christ. We're bad servants in that case. But we're still his servants if you've been redeemed by his blood. Not only is it our time, but it's also our our body. What we do with our body. It has to do with our energy, what we do with our energy, what we do with our mind, what we do with our heart, what we set our affections upon. All of those things come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So Paul sees himself as a bondservant of Christ. He also says that he is called as an apostle. He didn't volunteer. He didn't sign up. Christ called him. You remember the Damascus Road experience, the blinding light falling off his horse. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. There was no volunteering for this. He was the apostle of Jesus Christ by the command of Christ, by the will of God. Now, what is an apostle? Paul was called as an apostle. Well, the word apostle literally means sent one. Sent one. That means that Paul was sent by Christ to represent Christ and his truth. He was commissioned and he was authorized by Jesus Christ himself to go to the places that Christ would send him to represent Jesus in those places and to bring his truth to those people. Paul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. We find that in verse 5. He says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. So Christ called Paul especially to go to the Gentiles and to be his commissioned, authorized, sent one, his representative to them. Now why do you suppose Paul is telling them in the very first verse that Christ has called him to be an apostle? Well, the reason is because he wants them to give weight what he's about to write to them in this letter. If he's just any other Christian, then why give their time and their energy and why give weight and authority to what Paul is writing in this letter? But if he is a specially chosen and called apostle, then his words come with authority and they need to give heed to what he's about to write in this letter. Now, thirdly, Paul says that he's set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 1. He was set apart for the gospel of God. The word gospel literally means glad tidings. I really like that. (laughs) I like that. He was set apart for the glad tidings of God. Now when was Paul set apart for the glad tidings? He tells us in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. This is what Paul said. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. He said, 
God set me apart from my mother's womb. In other words, before I was even born into this world, God had already decided that I was going to be an apostle. And he was going to send me to the Gentile nations. Isn't that wild to consider? I mean, this was not God making it up as he went. It was set in stone before the guy was even born. He didn't know it yet. And I find it interesting when you, when you look at his life. God was working in Paul's life to make and to shape him and to prepare him for his future ministry even before he was trying to kill and imprison Christians. He had him sitting at the feet of Gamaliel, learning the law from one of the most learned rabbis of the day. Undoubtedly, that was going to affect his future as he knew the law like the back of his hand. And he would later write to the Galatians and say, you're not saved by the works of the law, but you're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So God was preparing him through his unbelief and even through those years where he was persecuting Christians, locking them up from city to city. And God is working in all of our lives, even before we came to him. He was working in us to prepare us for the day that we would serve him and do those works that were foreordained for us before the foundation of the world. So he was set apart for the gospel of God. The depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It blows me away to think about God can do these kinds of things. But I want you to know specifically how Paul describes himself. He says, I was bought. I was called. I was set apart. There's not one word of Paul's own achievements not one word of Paul's gifts, his intellect. Everything is about what has been done to him and for him. Christ bought me. Christ called me. Christ set me apart. And I love that. And I think we can take a lesson here, folks. When you share your story, just like Oleg did this morning, he gave God the glory for what happened in his life. Paul didn't say, you know, one day I just had the good sense to give my life to Jesus. I just... I just used my free will and I made my decision and I signed up and volunteered to walk. He didn't talk like that. He says, he who called me or set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was revealed to reveal his son in me. He talks about what God did for him. And that's the way we should tell our story. What did God do for you? Do you realize what God did for you? Do you realize the depth of degradation you came from. A slave of sin. Dead to God. And do you realize what God has done to make you his child? It's the work of God that we need to give him glory for. So there we have Paul. Called as an apostle. A bondservant of Christ Jesus. Set apart for the gospel of God. Then he launches into a lengthy description of the gospel. You see, this whole book is about the gospel, as we saw last Sunday. And so Paul begins to talk a little bit about the gospel, even in, in his introduction. He can't stop himself. He is inflamed with love for this glad tidings that God has entrusted to him. And so we're going to take phrase by phrase here. What's the first thing we learn about this gospel? God promised it beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, Paul's gospel is not some newfangled religion. It's not a Johnny-come-lately faith. It is the faith of God's people from the beginning of time having finally come to full flower and full fruition in Jesus Christ. It was promised Hundreds of years ago, he says it here, God promised this gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And from the beginning of human history, God had been promising this gospel, this good news. And specifically, what God had been promising was a person was going to come. Sometimes this person is referred to as the Messiah. Sometimes as the branch sometimes as the righteous servant. 
sometimes as the root of Jesse, or the son of righteousness, or Shiloh, or the prince of peace. God had used many titles for this one who was to come, but he was the good news, because this one is going to reverse the curse and redeem man under the guilt and bondage of sin and restore us back to the place we were before sin came into the world. This man was going to come and be the savior of sinners. And God had been promising this for hundreds of years, dozens and dozens of times. The very first one is in Genesis 3.15. They call that the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the gospel. God is speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity, hostility, war between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and the woman's seed. The seed of the woman's going to bruise you on the head. You can just bruise him on the heel. In other words, he's going to crush you. He's going to destroy you. The serpent stood for Satan. This one who God was going to bring into the world was going to deal a death blow to Satan. In Genesis 12.3, God speaks to Abraham and says, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he means, from you, you, your seed will be the one through whom blessing, spiritual blessing and salvation will come to the entire world. In Deuteronomy 18.15, God said to Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you for your countrymen. And all of them must give heed to what he says. Well, the Apostle Peter cites that in Acts chapter 3 and says it's talking about Jesus Christ. He was the prophet like Moses. So God is promising he's going to send this prophet. And you better pay heed to what he says. In Isaiah 53, the prophets spoke of the good news. They said that one was coming who would be afflicted, who would be in anguish, he would be despised and forsaken of men. He would be like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed and bruised for our iniquities. He would be chastened for us. He would be oppressed and afflicted, yet he wouldn't open his mouth. They're speaking about this one who would come. The prophet Isaiah spoke of him. The prophet David, although sometimes you don't think of David as a prophet, he was. In Psalm 22, in Psalm 69, with pinpoint precision, David spoke of the sufferings of Christ to come. So, for hundreds of years, the prophets have been speaking. They've been announcing, someone's coming. Someone's coming. Get ready. Now, in Romans 1, if we go back there for just a minute, you get a, a mini-theology of the inspiration of Scripture. Let's look at it. First, there's God. And then God makes a promise. But God has to give that promise to someone, and so he gives it to a prophet. A prophet was a spokesman for God. This prophet would speak God's promise, or write that promise, and that written promise from God becomes Scripture, as it says here in verse 2. Although it's not just any Scripture, it's called the Holy Scriptures. Now, why are the Scriptures holy? Because God's speaking. And God is holy. So when the Holy God speaks, what He reveals is Holy Scripture. So you have God speaking to a prophet who writes the scripture down. It's recognized the scripture. And because they recognize God is the one who's spoken it, it is holy. It's set apart. It's different from all other kinds of writings in the world. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's inspired by God. Now, the Old Testament prophets were similar to New Testament apostles. The Old Testament prophets were the spokesmen for Jehovah God. New Testament apostles are the spokesmen for the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophets represented God the Father. The apostles represent God the Son. Each one carries the authority of the one whom they represent and they speak forth for that one. And I think Paul realized that in his writings... 
God was inspiring him in a unique, special way. Because over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he, he talks about that. In verse 13, he says, Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So Paul was recognizing that the words that he was communicating and writing were spiritual, and they came from the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter talks about Paul's letters, and he says the untaught and the unstable distort Paul's letters just as they do the rest of the Scriptures. So Peter recognized that Paul's writings were Scripture. Paul recognizes that his writings carry the anointing of the Spirit. He's being borne along by the Spirit. They're spiritual words from the Spirit of God Himself. And so, as an apostle, inspired by God, he's writing the book of Romans as a representative of Jesus Christ, bringing forth exactly what the Lord Jesus wants to communicate to us. So, the gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3 says, concerning his son. If you want to know what the gospel is about, there's your answer. The gospel concerns God's son. If you have a gospel with no Jesus in it, you have no gospel. There is no gospel apart from Christ. He who has the Son has what? The life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. There is no good news. There is no glad tidings apart from Jesus because only in Christ can we be redeemed from sin. Muhammad cannot do that. No world religious leader can take your sin except for Jesus Christ because he is the Son of God incarnate. The gospel is concerning God's Son. And the first thing we learn about this son is that he was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. God's son was born. Think about that for a minute. Well, does that mean Jesus began to exist when he was an embryo in the womb of Mary? No. Because the Bible teaches that he is from everlasting. It even calls him the eternal father. In fact, in Hebrews 1, it says that he's God himself. So the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, was born. That means God became a man. When we eat chili con carne, what are we doing? What does con carne mean? with meat. Chili with meat, right? Chili with flesh. What is the incarnation? Carne, carnation. What is that talking about? God in the flesh. That's what we mean by the incarnation. That's what Christmas all is all about. God has visited us. God has come in the flesh. He always had a divine nature because he was God, but now he takes to himself a human nature as well. And the human and the divine are wedded together in one indissoluble person. The God-man. 100% fully human, 100% fully God in one undivided individual, one person. So he's a man with two natures, and we actually see that as we go through here. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But here it says... He was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. The descendant of David. Why was it good news for Jesus to be born of a descendant of David? It was foretold. Exactly. There are prophecies in our Old Testament that said God was going to send one of David's descendants to rule as a king. Let me show you some of that. First Samuel chapter seven. Oh, excuse me, Second Samuel chapter seven. Verse 
Here God is speaking through the prophet Nathan to David. I just want to pick up one verse, 2 Samuel 7, 12. Here's the word of God. And he's speaking to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, singular, your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish what? His kingdom. So whoever this one that God was going to send from David's seed is going to be, he's going to be a king. He's going to have a kingdom. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, there's another prophecy of David's descendant. It says in Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. David, you're going to die. But when you're dead and gone, I'm going to raise up one of your descendants to become a king. And this king is going to rule wisely, justly, and righteously. In fact, in Isaiah 9, 7, the scripture says about Jesus to come into the world, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And so it's no wonder in Mark 1.15, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I'm the one, he's saying. I'm David's descendant. I'm the one all those prophets were talking about that was supposed to come and rule as king. I'm here. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom's at hand. Get into the kingdom by repenting and believing the gospel. So that's good news. Because for hundreds of years these promises were given and now they're fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The second phrase here in Romans about this gospel is through whom we have received... Or excuse me, let's go back. I'm getting too far ahead of myself. Who has declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness... Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Son of God not only was the descendant of David, but he also was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now notice these two phrases here in Romans. Verse 3. Who is born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the Son of God with power according to the Spirit. You have something according to the flesh. You have something else according to the Spirit. What do we learn according to the flesh? Well, Jesus is David's seed, his descendant. He's a man. He's a real man like David was. What do we learn according to the Spirit of holiness? He's declared the Son of God. He's the Son of Man by being David's seed. He's the Son of God by being God's Son. Fully God and fully man. And that word declared means he was marked out as. I, got, I took a look at my interlinear, the Greek interlinear translation. That's how they translate this verse. Jesus was marked out as the Son of God with power. What do you mean he was marked out? It means he was manifested to us. He was revealed to us. He was declared and marked out to us as being the Son of God. And how do we know? It was through the resurrection from the dead that revealed the great almighty power of God. Now, other people had been raised in the Old Testament. Jesus even raised three people during his lifetime from the dead. But nobody was raised never to die again. This is the very first time that anybody is raised and they don't die. <laughs> they live forever. This marked Jesus out as unique among all the people who had ever come into this world. He's not just one of the gang. He's different. He's separate. He's special. He is God in the flesh. And the resurrection from the dead marks him out as that. And this resurrection was according to the spirit of holiness. I understand that to mean according to the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit had a part to play in raising Jesus' body from the dead, according to Romans 8, I think it's verse 10 or 11. The Spirit of God was at work raising Jesus from the dead. And it marks him out as Jesus Christ, our Lord. But for his bondservants, it makes sense that he's our Lord. The third thing we learn about Jesus Christ, the first one is he's born a descendant of David. Second, he's declared the Son of God with power. The third is that through him we have received grace and apostleship. But I have to go back to this last one for just a second. We have been doing a lot of witnessing to Muslims lately because we've been going to this one apartment complex and they're just moving in. They're, they're coming from Afghanistan and Iraq because of the persecution they're facing over there. And they're Muslims. They're coming over here. And Debbie and I have been talking to them. They're super hospitable people. So friendly. They invite you in. And they're, they're very poor, but they, they give you what they have in their home. They bring you know, this pudding kind of thing and nuts. And they bring all this stuff to you to, to eat it while you're there and tea. Anyway, we've been talking to them and witnessing to them, and they tell me, well, in our understanding, Jesus Christ did not die. He just went to heaven. The angels came and took him to heaven without dying. Now, do you see why that would be important for Satan to concoct that kind of a scheme? If Jesus didn't die, there's no atoning sacrifice. If Jesus didn't die, there's no resurrection from the dead. If there's no atoning sacrifice, and if there's no resurrection from the dead, there's no gospel. Because that's what the gospel is. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save guilty sinners. They've, Satan's got rid of the gospel by eliminating the cross and the resurrection in the teachings of Islam. Okay, just as an aside, let's go back to number three. Jesus Christ is the one who bestows grace and apostleship. That's what we're told in verse five through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now notice that grace is linked to Paul's apostleship. Not only is Jesus human, not only is he God, not only is he master, Lord, King, eternal Son, he's also the one through whom God's grace flows to us. Paul's ministry was linked with the grace of God. God's grace was what bestowed apostleship upon Paul. I'll put it that way. Now, what do we mean by grace? When we think about the word grace, you might think of a, the movement of a ballet dancer. Right? Very graceful. Or you might think of saying a prayer before you eat a meal. You're saying grace. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about God's undeserved favor. That's what he means in the scriptures. The word comes up 122 times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul uses the word grace 99 of those 122 times in his writings. And almost one-fourth of all of the times Paul mentions the word grace come up in this book. So, if you don't understand grace, you can't understand the book of Romans. Grace is at the heart of this book, it's at the heart of the gospel, and it's at the heart of God. So we must understand grace if we're going to get it. God's grace was obtained in the obedience, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And grace is antithetical to what we claim a right to. In other words, you can never claim that you have a right to grace. Because it's unearned, unbought unsought, undeserved. It has nothing to do with merit. It has everything to do with God's free, spontaneous, voluntary bestowal. You see the difference? You don't do something to get grace. You don't obtain it through works or efforts or performance. It's given freely by God Almighty out of His great heart. Sometimes when Paul speaks about God's grace, he's speaking about God's grace to save people from sin. But that's not what he's talking about here. Here he's talking about God's grace that gave him ministry. Did you notice that? He says in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Not grace and forgiveness, grace and apostleship. 
And that's how he talks in the rest of this letter at certain points. Like in chapter 12, verse 3. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In other words, it was God's grace that gave me the wisdom to tell you, don't think more highly than you ought to think. He's not talking about being saved from sin. He's talking about the, the ministry of extending wisdom to these people. That was grace. Well, look at verse 6 of chapter 12. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. Now notice that. If we have, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So God's grace is instrumental in bestowing spiritual gifts, apostleship, or various ministry within the body of Christ. Turn over to chapter 15 and look at verse 15 and 16. Paul says, But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, he mentions grace in verse 15, but what was the grace about? Well, he tells us in verse 16, the grace was that he would be a minister, called as an apostle to the Gentiles. So this is different from saving grace. This was serving grace. This is empowering grace to please God by performing service to others. In verse 18 and 19, he says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So he's speaking there about this grace that has empowered him to preach and to do signs and wonders to extend the kingdom of God. And then he says over in 1 Corinthians 15.10, and this really makes it clear. First Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. <laughs> See, I was laboring, but it really wasn't me. It was God's grace enabling me and spurring me on and causing me to labor more than all the other apostles. So when Paul talks about serving God, he says, it's grace that enabled me and anointed me and helped me to be able to do all of that. Now, in verse 1, he says he's a bondservant of Christ Jesus and he's set apart as an apostle. So what he really means is that he's serving God. As a servant, he's serving God as an apostle. But we should never get the impression from Paul that when he's serving God, he's serving in his own power. That's why he tells us that his apostleship came from God's grace to him. And that's why he said he served more than all the other apostles, but it was really the grace of God through him doing those works. So Paul serves Christ by the grace with which Christ serves Paul. Let me say that again. Paul serves Christ by the grace with which Christ serves Paul. If you ever serve God, you can't take credit because you did that by God's grace. Do you understand? Whatever you do for the Lord, whether you're preaching at a mission or you're preaching out on the streets or you're witnessing to someone on their doorstep or you're taking food to someone who's hungry or poor, whatever it is you're doing in the name of Christ, you're doing that by the grace of God through you. You can insert your name here. I'll just put mine in. You can put your own in. Brian, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an, and then you have to put your own word in there. Now, I wouldn't put apostle in there, but I might put pastor, or I might put teacher, something that God has called me to do. Now, Eduardo might say, called as a street preacher. Someone else might say, called as a 
minister to people in convalescent hospitals. Someone else might say, called to be a generous giver. Someone else might say, I'm called to women's ministry. Or I'm called to children's ministry. But what what is it that God has called you to do? Folks, you know, that is super important that we, that we, that we try to find out what that is so that we can give the bulk of our energy and time to doing that and not running around doing things that God has never called us to do. You know what I mean? It, it's important to identify the gift that God has given to you and the area of using that gift. Where did, what does he want you to be doing? Paul said he was called to be an apostle, but he was an apostle by the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, he also says here, it was to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. We saw the nature of grace, God's undeserved favor, but here we find the effect of grace. Grace was to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. God's grace comes through faith, but it is also unto faith. It's to produce faith in others, according to Paul's words here. Now he speaks about the obedience of faith. God, through his grace, made him an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith. Now what does he mean by the obedience of faith? Is he mixing faith and obedience together as some kind of a way to be reconciled to God? No, he's not talking about that. Paul's talking about obedience being the fruit of faith. Obedience is the result of faith. And Paul's job was to bring people to faith, and then obedience is going to follow. Because Faith without works reveals a dead faith. A living faith produces living works. It produces obedience. It produces a life of holiness. And Paul knows that. And so here are the effects of grace. Obedience. Faith coming and resulting in obedience. Now, how does God's grace... We've said that God's grace is free on God's part. It's undeserved. But what is the channel or the instrument through which we receive that grace? It's faith faith. Ephesians 2.8, you have been saved by grace through faith. God's grace comes through faith. Not by works, comes through faith. So faith is what, faith is the hand that receives grace and makes it yours. So that means that all true obedience and all service has to be done through faith because faith is what receives grace, and grace is what enables obedience. Do you see the chain? God gives grace. We receive that grace through faith. A living faith produces obedience and service. So our job is to produce the obedience of faith. And we do that by bringing the gospel, and the Lord opens the mind and the heart to lay hold on this gospel. Faith is engendered and obedience is sure to follow. All true obedience and service has to be done in the power of God's grace, not our own power. All true obedience must come from faith. Now notice this last phrase. We talked about the nature of grace, the effects of grace. What is the ultimate goal of grace? The end of verse 5. For his name's sake. Paul said, God through his grace made me an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for a particular reason. It was for his, Christ's, namesake. You know why God does every single thing he does? If you, if you trace it back to its original source, he does it for his namesake. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still, wa still waters. He, what's the next one? Yes, and he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God is for God before he's for anybody else. God loves his own glory. 
and he will do what is necessary to promote that glory. Paul had the job of extending the fame of God's glory and the reputation of his great name throughout all the Gentile nations. That was the ultimate goal of Paul's whole ministry. Grace was given freely. It was given to produce the obedience of faith. But the net result, the ultimate goal, is that God's name would be glorified wherever people believe. Now, Paul, later in chapter 9 of this letter, talks about that. Let me just read to you Romans 9.17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Do you know why God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, of course, Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God hardened it too. It's half of one, six of the other, however that saying goes. <laughs> It was, both of them were doing it. Pharaoh was hardening his own heart and God was hardening Pharaoh's heart. But the whole reason behind it is so that God's name would be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. You see a key here that will unlock the scriptures for you? You can go from Genesis to Revelation and you will find this principle. God is doing it. Not, not for your sake, O house of Israel, have I done this. But for my own sake have I done it. I could take a sermon and go through dozens. Maybe I'll do that someday dozens of scriptures that talk about this. God is uppermost in God's own affections. And his name is valuable to him. And he wants that name extended and proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And it's our happy job, Christian, to do that. To extend the greatness of Christ's name wherever we go. That's the ultimate goal of why he's given you grace in a ministry. Whatever that ministry is. It's to extend the fame and the glory of Christ's great, awesome name. Now, why would God set things up like this, in this way? I think it's because he wants to be the fountain and the giver. That's why we can only serve and obey through his grace. He's the one who enables us to do it. Now, but why would, why would he want to be the fountain and the giver? Because the giver gets the glory. I think that's why. We are completely dependent on Him. And He is the gracious, benevolent giver. So God gets the glory and we get the help through this system that He has devised. If Paul depended on himself, Christ wouldn't be praised. Paul would be praised. But God set up a system through which God would get the glory, Paul would get the help, people would come to the obedience of faith and his great name would be extended throughout the world. Listen how the Apostle Peter talks about this very same thing. It's 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's just another way of saying that all of our service and all of our ministry comes through the grace of God. It's his strength that supplies it. So let's draw this down to a conclusion. Folks, what does this mean for you? It means that you also are Christ's bondservant. You are owned by him. You are ruled by him. He has given you grace and ministry. Now, I want you to hear that word really important. I think we do a huge disservice when we talk about the pastor as the minister of the church. Because that implies there's only one. And that's not true. We've got about 35 ministers here. If you're saved, God has called you to ministry of one sort or another. Ministry simply means service. That's all it means. He's called you to serve. So God has called you to service. You need to figure out what that is. And there's all kinds of different ways that we can serve Him. It might be a ministry to children, to women, leading a Bible study. It might be to displaying Christ to an unbelieving spouse. It might be giving generously, leading the church, discipling men or discipling women. The gift of mercy, exhorting, encouraging, 
whatever it is in your life, you, we've all got to depend upon God's grace, which means that we need to pray that God would help us in this ministry. So refuse to take the praise when God begins to use you in ministry. Let's say that you've got a ministry discipling people and you see them start taking off and they're growing and changes being made in their life. Hide beneath the cross when that starts happening. Because when you start to take the praise for that, you're putting yourself in a position God really can't use you anymore. God hates the proud. He, What does he say? He um, exalts the humble and he opposes the proud. Don't put yourself in a position where God's going to oppose you. Remain humble. God has devised the way he does things in a very, very wise way because what it does is it kills pride and it promotes humility, which is a beautiful grace. So refuse to take the praise. Make it your goal to make God look great in the way you serve. Show to others that you're doing this by his power and that he's enabling you to do it. And trust God. He's worthy of all of our service and his grace is sufficient for anything that he's called you and I to do. Let's pray. Lord, here we are. A, a band of disciples. A band of ministers. Lord, we want our lives to count. We look at Paul and we see how he served through the grace you gave him and we pray that we might do the same. Lord, if there's confusion and people here today about what it is that you're really wanting them to do in life, please dispel that confusion and let them know what it is that you're calling them to do. And then, Lord, let us do it with all of our might, depending mightily upon your grace. Lord, help us to extend the reputation and the fame of Jesus Christ wherever we go. Let us be a savior of life unto life. In your holy name, amen.